Anyway, some of you know that I, I play a musical instrument called the Mountain Dulcimer. There's the, the, my, I have two of them. There they are. And uh, back in May, this last May, I went to a house concert uh, featuring a professional Mountain Dulcimer player. And if you were to say to me, Steve, play like she does, that would be kind of discouraging. Uh, she can do things that I, truthfully, I will never be able to do. And it's not that I'm selling myself short. It's just that I realize that there are limits to my talent. Now, I also discovered, though, that this professional dulcimer player who lives in Wichita gives dulcimer lessons via Skype. And so last year, I took three lessons from her. I learned some new music. I learned some new techniques. It inspired me, so I started playing even more. Uh, I've been learning from my teacher. I'm learning to play some songs that she plays, and I, I'm learning to try some things I'd never tried before. And still, I don't play just like she does, and that's okay. I'm not discouraged because I'm making progress, and I'm having fun. Today, we start a new series called Be Like Jesus, and I can see how that could easily be discouraging. I mean, sounds impossible, right? I'll never be that wise, that good, that spiritually sound. Steve, when you tell me to be like Jesus, it seems like you're setting me up for failure. Well, I hear you. And when I say be like Jesus, I am, I am talking about Radical change. But Jesus gives you something extra. He gives you resources. He helps you. And he inspires you. And he knows that there's going to be a learning process to all of this. Excuse me. Each Sunday this month, uh, we're going to look at, a, at an episode of Jesus' life so that you and I can learn to be like Jesus. We have a theme verse for this series. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1b. The b means it's the second part of the verse. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, I follow the example of Christ. Let's say it together, shall we? I follow the example of Christ. You got it memorized, right? I follow the example of Christ. Now, so I won't make you sing it this, this time. All right. Now, before we go any uh, further, I have to make it clear that Jesus, of course, is way more than our example, right? He, he's our atonement for sin. He reconciles us to God. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the one and only Son of God. And He's our example. As disciples, we follow His example. Uh, so today, our theme is going to be all about fighting temptation like uh, Jesus did. So uh, I'm going to invite Larry uh, Berryman to come on up here. Uh, Larry's going to share with us a little bit from his own personal experience, and that's also important when we face uh, our trials and temptations. So Larry, thank you for coming and, and sharing with us, being able to do that. You have a perspective when it comes to temptation that maybe a lot of us here don't. Uh, tell us about that, would you? Well, Steve, as you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, mm -hmm. and I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is a God-based program, which a lot of people don't realize. Right. 
And it's a program which can apply to any type of addiction, whether it be drugs, alcohol, uh, food, uh, shopping. And in our, as I said, it is a God-based program, and we follow a series of 12 steps. And these 12 steps are taken in order, and if they're followed and, and, and held to religiously, it can lead to freedom from our addictions. Yeah. Um, for example, talking about God-based, uh, step three tells us that we should turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Steps 11 and 12 tell us to improve our conscious contact with God and to practice these godly principles in all of our affairs. So that's pretty much yeah. how I do it. And uh, so how, how does that help you then when you face other kinds of temptations in your life? Well, as a result of my membership in AA, I recognize temptation much more quickly than I than I did before I became a member. And I've learned not to be afraid to ask for help, okay. help for help, and help from my sponsor in AA, from AA friends, to uh, clergy, and also to, of course, my wife. And this was really hard for me to admit I needed help. Uh, and that makes it difficult to overcome an addiction. You, the first step is, and the most important step is, we have to ask for help. Right. And uh, it was very hard for me because of my type A personality, as you know uh -huh. about. And uh, so when I'm stressed, like when I go down and walk the aisles of Hy-Vee and get to the liquor aisle, yeah. uh, or when someone cuts me off in traffic, or when I get involved in a political discussion that I don't want any part of, <laughs> I must say to myself, and I do say to myself, Larry, first thought, first thought wrong. Mm -hmm. And then that usually doesn't work. So then I go to the second step, which is Larry, second thought wrong. That means the first or second thing you think of is probably not what you should be listening to, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And then it usually goes on with me sometimes, or not always, but sometimes it goes on to the third step, which is the serenity prayer. Okay, tell us that. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And then, if I'm really stressed or I'm really tempted, I say, Larry, is this the hill you want to die on? <laughs> and by the time I go through all four of those steps, usually the temptation is, is lessened in my mind and I'm okay. able to move on. Okay. Now. I know one thing, too, that helps in recovery is to recognize things that make you more vulnerable. Uh, what has helped you with that, Larry? Well, one of the first things I learned uh, as I joined AA is they talk about being in a halt phase. And I didn't understand what that meant. And HALT is an, an acronym which stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And I find that when I'm in any one of those phases, I'm much more susceptible to temptation. So when I'm hungry, I need to take a positive action. That is usually have something to eat. And when I'm angry, angry, I need to recognize that anger and I need to deal with it. And when I'm lonely, I need to pick up the telephone and call somebody or reach out to somebody or call one of my friends. 
And of course, when I'm tired, I can solve that easily. I just take a nap. You can ask my wife about that. <laughs> I know, you know, Larry, you and I kind of exchanged beforehand getting ready for this. And one of the things you said really intrigued me. And it was a technique I wanted to hear more about. And you said it was to play the tape to the end. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, that, that was something that, that I didn't realize. And I've done some research on this because I have some medical education. And it turns out that all of us, whether we have addictions or not, have an area in our brain called the pleasure center, mm -hmm. okay? And the pleasure center has been documented with MRIs and, and CAT scans and other, other dye tests. And this pleasure, this, this pleasure center is supposed to control our actions and, and our reactions to whatever gives us pleasure. Okay. For whatever reason, the addict's, the addict's pleasure center is just not wired right and hence we cannot react with sufficient, uh, with sufficient force to recall all the trauma and the sorrow and the pain and the aggravation we caused our significant others, our friends, and even somebody we don't know. And uh, we addicts have a tape in our heads. It's like a videotape. And that videotape records uh, all the good times. Oh yeah. man, it was great when we were having our alcoholic binges or when we were shooting up with whatever or when someone is doing drugs of any type. But that tape also, also uh, takes in the, the, the bad things, or the good things, that, the bad things that happens, I'm sorry. And, and it, it, rec it records uh, our the trouble we've caused in our life and the trouble we've caused for other people and the tears and the agony, uh, it records that. But for whatever reason, the addict cannot uh, interpret that tape. He doesn't play it, he or she doesn't play it all the way to the end. And so we learn to play that tape when we're tempted or when we're thinking about our addiction, we need to play the tape, the good part, but especially play the end of the tape, which is the bad part. So you learn from your past and you learn to to say okay if I'm going to take in that history take in the whole history before I before I act on this yeah. exactly I yeah. won't make you sing that you did good. yeah that's good <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've been uh, go ahead Larry I'm going to say that I've been sober for seven and a half years yeah thank you Larry Okay, so thank you, Larry. And you know, some of you might want to talk with Larry sometime. Maybe Larry and his wife, Marilyn, and maybe you're going through something. You need, to, you need their counsel. Uh, what kind of temptations do you go through? Will you fudge on the truth a little to make, you look, make yourself look better? Well, that's, a big, that's an easy one, isn't it? We do that one. Will I put someone down because I'm angry? Will I escape into my voyeuristic fantasies? Will, will I do it my way instead of God's way? You know, temptations hit us from all corners every day. Every day we are tempted with some kind of thought, word, or deed that is outside of what God wants for us. Now, maybe there are times when you feel like 
man, I am just, I'm a hopeless victim. I, I, I'm helpless against temptation. I'm a failure. You, you, maybe you wonder why you have so little self-control. But I want you to know and hear some really good news today. With Jesus on my side, I am not temptation's helpless victim. Let's affirm that together, shall we? Let's say it. With Jesus on my side, I am not temptation's helpless victim. Do you believe that? Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 967. Now, I want to tell you what's going on before Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is, has gone to the Jordan River where he, was ba he is baptized. And as he's coming out of the water, he sees the Holy Spirit descending upon him and resting upon him. And then he hears the voice of the Heavenly Father saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So it's a really kind of a Trinitarian experience, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I was thinking, can you imagine what that must have been like for Jesus? You know, you're baptized, you see the Holy Spirit coming, you hear the Father speak to you. I mean, if Jesus had any question about his, about his identity as God's Son, they certainly would have been put to rest, wouldn't you think? So if you're with me in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, please follow along. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So before Jesus goes into his public ministry, he must pass through this crucible. In the Bible, sometimes the devil's portrayed as a, an evil uh, personal spirit being. Uh, other times he's depicted more as a, as a force or influence uh, upon humanity. I've been, I've been reading uh, Dale Bruner's excellent commentary on Matthew lately. And uh, he says that in the original Greek, the root of the word for devil is a verb that means to split. His aim is to split us from God. And that's what he's trying to do with Jesus here, to split him from God's, uh, will, God's word and God's will. Now, one of the things as we go through Jesus' temptations here is, is we must not assume that because he's Jesus, it was easy. Or that he wasn't really tempted at all. I mean, if Jesus wasn't really tempted, then these aren't temptations. But he was tempted. There must have been something here that was terribly enticing to him. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now there's an understatement, right? I mean, I go three or four hours and I feel like I'm starving. I can't imagine going 40 days. The only other person in the Bible who went 40 days without, uh, who fasted that long was Moses, right before he gave God's law to the people of Israel. Now Jesus is getting ready to give his expansion of Moses' law in the Sermon on the Mount. And just like Moses, first he fasts. Now, it is humanly possible, at least for some people, to fast from food for 40 days. I, I know of a Christian leader some decades ago who did it. But let me tell you, it brings you near starvation. It is starving your body. Uh, not everyone could survive it. 
Now, remember what Larry was saying about when you're vulnerable? He uses that acronym HALT. Well, I was thinking about Jesus during this time. He probably was experiencing all of these, right? He was hungry. That's what it says right there. We really don't know if he was angry at the time. Maybe he was hangry. But that would begin with an H, so whatever. Uh, he, was, he was probably lonely. He'd been in the wilderness for 40 days. And if you don't eat for that long, you're, sure, you're certainly going to be tired. So Jesus was in a vulnerable spot. Verse 3 starts out, the tempter came to him. Notice he's called the tempter now. In verse 10, Jesus will call him Satan, which means the accuser. You might ask, did Satan actually show up, like physically, bodily, he was really there? Um, I don't know. Gospels don't really tell us that. Um, it, it certainly could have been that way, or, or maybe... Uh, you know, Jesus was just hearing the tempter's voice in his mind and imagination, much like we do. So verse 3 going on, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus, you can do it. I mean, look at you. You're the Son of God. Make it happen. What an affirmation this will be of your divine status. But remember, Jesus has already heard the voice of the Father at his baptism. This is my Son whom I love. And so the temptation there is to get Jesus thinking that he needs more, that he needs more proof of his sonship. He needs a miracle he can really sink his teeth into. You know, it's the same with us. Sometimes we who belong to Jesus, we're tempted to wonder, well, you know, am I really good with God? Am I really God's child? You know, I say I've been saved by faith through grace, uh, through faith in Jesus. I have God's promise in, in Scripture. I've been baptized. I've received the Holy Spirit. I mean, what more do I need? But the temptation is, well, to say, well, that's not really enough. You know, so maybe you better, maybe you better ask God for more so that you, you really, really know. You know, God, if you do just this one thing for me, that I really, really want, then I'd know that you're with me, that you hear me. Or the accuser suggests that, uh, you know, well, Steve, after the way you've been, <laughs> I go, yeah, you're right. Look at me. I'm a mess. I struggle with anger. I struggle with insecurity. I struggle with envy. And so you think, okay, what I need is some big slam-bang miracle to prove that I'm good with God. So, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket, and I'm going to pray that I can be a mega millionaire. And then I'll know, right? You see the temptation? It's a lot like stones into bread. But Jesus knows who he is, and he doesn't need a loaf of bread to prove it. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man or humans shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus counters that temptation with Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Now, of course he needs food. Absolutely he needs food. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, but life is more than food. 
each time Jesus is tempted, he quotes Scripture. Did you notice that? So, to be like Jesus, we, mu we become Scripture-read and Scripture-ready. We become Scripture-read and Scripture-ready. So, the Bible nourishes us. If, if we're not taking it in, then let me tell you, we're going to starve. We're going to wither. And, and God's Word, the Bible says, is also the sword of the Spirit. So we've got to have it ready for battle. You know what I find? That it is so easy to be lazy when it comes to the Bible. Don't you think? Do you find the same thing true in your life? We, we, we do other things. We watch TV. We play games. We read the paper. We, how many hours do you spend on social media? And the Bible gets left behind. But let me tell you, we are, among other things, the people of the book. We're people of the book. Read it. Learn it. Uh, hide its word in your heart that you might not sin against God. And then the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the top, to the highest pinnacle of the temple, and says, verse 6, if, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Notice, this time, Satan tempts Jesus using Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91. And, and this kind of temptation appeals to Scripture-read, Scripture-ready people, wouldn't it? Right? He's quoting the Bible. I mean, how can it be wrong? How, what's, how can I argue with that? But notice Jesus does not say, well, get rid of that. You, you, can't, you can't count on the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. Instead, he puts Psalm 91 in perspective by quoting another scripture. Verse 7, uh, Jesus answered him, It is written, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So, to be like Jesus, we learn to recognize when the Bible is misused, misquoted, or misconstrued. And I'm sure you've thought about this before, but you can, if you... If you want to, you can defend just about anything by pulling out a Bible verse. I mean, anything. You can find some little sentence here or there that, that supports it. That's why we have to look at the whole of Scripture through the lens of Christ. That's kind of our main interpretive principle. We look at the whole of Scripture through the lens of Christ. Um, Every week, 52,000 people attend Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. You know, that's the one where Joel Osteen's the pastor. Uh, largest church in the nation. Now, I don't listen to Osteen much. Uh, I do know he's tremendously gifted. He brings people to Christ. His church does some good mission work. But when he talks about prosperity, it makes me cringe. 
He says that if you give for others, then God is going to pour out financial blessings upon you. If you want to be healthy and wealthy, then you just claim that word of victory over your household and it'll happen, just like it did for him. I believe that on this subject, Joel Osteen misuses Scripture. He's got some he can quote, but I believe they're misused. Now, Joel Osteen is our brother in Christ. He's our brother in Christ. But I have a responsibility for, for warning you of this false teaching. To be like Jesus, we learn to recognize when the Bible is misused, misquoted, or misconstrued. We find the third temptation in verses 8 and 9. Again, Jesus, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan promises him all the kingdoms of the earth. And in one sense, he can, he can make that offer. The Bible calls him the prince of this world. And, and, and we're a world of idol worshipers, and that's his domain. So think of it. Jesus wouldn't have to suffer to win the world to himself. All he has to do is bend the knee to the tempter. It'd be so easy. Now, how long did Jesus consider this temptation? Let's look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So, Jesus did not entertain this temptation. He didn't just kind of play around with it in his mind and going, oh, maybe I ought to think more about that. To be like Jesus, we must say no to temptation immediately. The longer you let it play around in your brain, the more attractive it becomes, the more vulnerable you become. Temptation is like a spider spinning its web, inviting you in for dinner. I like what Rick Warren says about temptation. He says, don't resist temptation, replace it. You know, I think there's some biblical wisdom in that. Uh, more than once, the Bible tells us to flee temptation. Rather than just plant our feet and try to duke it out with temptation, just get out of there, get away from it. Take, take away uh, temptation's home court advantage and replace it with something good. Now, some of you know um, what you'll find when you go to the break room at work. Right? People gossiping. Everybody's gossiping about everybody else. And so maybe you've decided, you know, if I go to that break room, it's just way too easy for me to join in. I just, I just can't hang out there anymore. You know, you got to get away. You got to get away. 
Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it's saying, oh, Lord, you got to help me get out of here. It's not a good place for me. Because if I stick around, around all this temptation, eventually it's going to wear me down. Whatever your temptation is, Jesus is, us. Jesus is on your side. You are not temptation's helpless victim when he is with you. But if you fail, if you fall, he will not give up on you. He will not give up on you. And today, if you realize that Jesus is not with you, that you are not on his side, then I want to invite you to walk through this big open door. He is, I believe he opens your heart so that you realize, okay, this offer is for me. This good news is for me. And he's, he's opened this door and said, come on in. Come on in with me. Join me. The choice is yours. You can say, okay, Jesus, here I am. I need you to save me from sin and my idolatry. I, I, I give my life to you. I say, oh, Lord, I, I, I need to be forgiven. I need you to make your home in me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. And if you, if you walk through that door and reach out to him, he will keep that promise and he will be with you and he will strengthen you every day and every temptation you face. 